Are you ready? Ephesians chapter 4. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit in our study of Ephesians because uh, we're beginning the second part of Paul's letter. I mentioned earlier that the first part, chapters 1 through 3, Paul provides this theological summary of the church's standing in Christ, that we're blessed, we're chosen, we're called, we're forgiven, we're filled with the Spirit, we're united with Jesus and His church, and we're heirs of the kingdom of God. And up to this point, Paul hasn't given us any instruction except to remember what God has done, to remember that we were Gentiles, and now we, that, that remember that we were once alienated from God and we've been brought into His family. And so in the second part, Paul begins to give instructions to believers. And we go from standing to walking, which is eventually leading to warring. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're gonna, we're, as we get there in the month of October, we're going to talk about the armor of God. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. But before you go to war, you must learn how to walk. And before you learn how to walk, you have to learn where you stand. So we've completed the first part. We know where we stand. We're going to start walking now. And so these next three chapters is the application of the truths that we've already discussed. And Paul, he frequently uses the word walk. You're going to hear this word a lot as we continue forward. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the calling. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says to walk in love. In 5, 8, he says to walk in the light. And then in 5, 15, he says, walk wisely. Walk, walk, walk. You know, we took the kids to the library yesterday. And I've shared this before. I don't like going on walks. Especially on hot summer days, you know, my, when my wife is like, hey, let's just go for a walk. I'm like, well, we better be going somewhere, right? There's got to be a destination. I don't want to just walk around the block. I have to have somewhere to go. And so my wife said, well, let's, let's go to the library. And I said, oh, well, are we going to, we had to make a decision. Are we going to walk to the library with the kids or are we going to drive? We live at the end of division, so it's not a far walk. We're at the end of, we're by the courthouse. And so we decided, you know what, if the point was to spend time at the library, then we would have driven. But the point wasn't to spend time at the library. The destination wasn't the objective. We just wanted to get the kids outside to get some exercise before their nap time. The walk was the entire point. It was the reason we were leaving the house. And when it comes to your spiritual life, you never arrive at your destination, do you? You will never arrive at your destination until Jesus returns and completely restores all things. And there is never a moment when you will look in the mirror and you're going to say, I've done it. I'm completely perfect. I, I love everyone. I'm always full of joy and peace. I'm perfectly forgiving. I love everyone. I forgive everyone. Every person I encounter thinks I'm amazing because I truly am perfect. No, you will never look in the mirror and say those words. Here's the point. God is less concerned with the destination and more concerned with your daily decisions. He's less concerned with the destination. He wants to grow you and mature you, but that's not going to fully happen until Jesus returns. He's more focused on your walk, on your daily decisions. And for the rest of your life, God wants to teach you how to walk like Jesus. Parents, do you remember watching your kids learn how to walk? Do you remember... When they stumbled and fell, did you scold them or shame them when they fell down? No. You cheered them on, right? And you helped them stand back on their feet. There was never a destination. There was only ever celebrating as they put one foot in front of the other. And you put out your hands, didn't you? You looked at them in the eye. You put out your hands and said, come on, walk to me, walk to me. And they would almost get to their destination. They'd almost get to your arms. And what did you do? You'd step a little farther back. 
Come on, keep it coming. Because the point wasn't to get them into your arms, although that was always a good thing to embrace them and say, you did it. I'm so proud of you. The point was that they grew stronger and that their legs learned how to walk. Desert Church, let's allow the Holy Spirit to teach us how to walk today. Would you pray with me as we read this? Father, I pray that as we read your word, you would open up our eyes and our hearts to learn how to walk like you, Jesus. Help us lay aside any pride or any unforgiveness or anything that hinders us from receiving your word today. I pray that we would truly be disciples, that we wouldn't just be hearers, we would be doers. So, Father, I pray that your word would come alive this morning. In your name we pray. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in light of this amazing truth, we're going to break there, Paul has already shared in, 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 in light of the truth that Paul has shared in the first three chapters of Ephesians, God's rich grace, his endless love, he says to walk in a way that honors what God has done for you. He says don't squander it. Don't sit on your butt. You got to get up and walk. Then Paul continues. He goes on to talk about this theme of unity that we've already been talking so much about in Ephesians. He continues to talk about unity. Verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you believe that Jesus was God in the flesh who died for your sins and rose again, and he is the only way to the Father, then we are members of the same body. It doesn't, you know, the church, the church, the, 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 that church may sprinkle people with a little water when they baptize them, and we may fully submerge people in water when we baptize them, but as long as it is a baptism into Christ Jesus, then it is the same baptism. We are the same family. If you believe in Jesus, that he is Lord and Savior, and that he rose from the grave, he's the only way to heaven, then we are members of the same family. And Paul wants what Jesus wanted. He wants to unite his church together under faith in the same Lord. There are so many things that divide the church today, aren't there? Little things. And Paul is saying, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is Lord, and we are members of the same family. Don't let these little issues divide you. Don't let your little disagreements or your preferences divide you. Keep Jesus the center of it all. And then in verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us. Look at somebody next to you and say, You have grace. According to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Grace is such a huge word. But essentially it means unmerited favor. Or it can be viewed... As an undeserved gift. Grace is a gift that you did nothing to earn. 
It was undeserved. It was unmerited. It was freely given to you. But this gift of grace not only encompasses God's gift of salvation, grace is also a gift that shows us favor and empowers us for ministry. The Holy Spirit is a gift, and he is another extension of God's grace. When we talk about grace, I'm not only referring to the saving power of grace, the salvation that God gives us, even though that is a gift of grace as well, but grace is such an all-encompassing word. There's gifts, there's grace for ministry, there is grace uh, that the Holy Spirit is a gift, and he is an extension of grace. And when Paul mentions grace in verse 7, when he says, but grace was given to each one of us, he's referring to the grace to do ministry. Essentially, we could say that Paul is saying ministry was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We all have an obligation to administer this grace to others. It's not only the pastor's responsibility, church, right? It's not my It is not my sole responsibility to administer God's grace. You have just as as much of a buy-in as I do. You are equally responsible to administer God's grace. Verse 11. He talks about ministry gifts now. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Has anybody recognized any of that in our world today? This to and fro, this being washed away, this this craftiness and deceitfulness that has crept into even the church and deceived people. Paul is saying, we have been given the gift of grace, a, a gift of ministry personally, but we also were given gifts of people. That God has given us people as gifts to help build the church into maturity. So that we can stand firm and we can be aware against the deceitfulness and against the craftiness, against the schemes of the enemy. Many people refer uh, to this group that Paul just mentioned, that the the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, they're referred to as the fivefold ministry. And as I was reading this morning, I, I discovered, in fact, that Paul... And you could take this or leave this. This is one interpretation of the scripture, and I, I believe this is, this is accurate. But Paul doesn't mention five, but four distinct groups. And the reason is this, is that there's a conjunction in between the last two, the shepherds and teachers, that's different from the other conjunctions between, the, between all the other parts. And so Paul, when he says to the apostles and the prophets, that, that word and in the Greek is a separating conjunction, saying uh, moreover or also, it's an, it's an addition. But the conjunction connecting shepherds and teachers is actually a conjoining conjunction. It is a blending conjunction. So Paul, he, he, uh, in the Greek, it can be translated that he's not referring to teachers and shepherds as separate things, but, but teaching shepherds, teaching pastors. Now, you can take that or leave that. Maybe you disagree with me. And, of course, none of these groups are mutually exclusive uh, exclusive from one another because it can be argued that Paul was every single one of these groups. He was an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, a shepherd, a teacher. And neither is there any hierarchy within these groups because Paul 
is referring to ministry, ministry gifts, which are meant to serve and build each other up. And so you can't say that the apostle is more important or the prophet is more important because these are servant gifts, right? And what did Jesus say about leadership? What did he say about being the greatest in the kingdom? He said, if you want to be the greatest, you got to become the lowest. If you want to sit at the table in heaven, you have to serve other people. You have to bring yourself low. And so there's no hierarchy in all of these groups. They are servant gifts meant to build the church up. Recently, another pastor told me a story from within his church that a man a man told the pastor that he was a prophet and therefore he was above the pastor and was, he was expecting the pastor to listen and follow his lead. And that is the opposite of unity, church. Right? That's the opposite of harmony within the church. So these four or five groups, depending on your interpretation, they are not the cream of the crop. God's top pick of people. They are servant positions meant to equip and build the church, which means that the pastor wasn't meant to do all the ministering. The culture today, though, however, is to, is, is to see a full-time pastor and recognize, well, they get paid to tell people about Jesus, so I'm going to leave it to the professional. Right? I'm not good at sharing G- I'm not good at telling the gospel or, or sharing the gospel with people. I'm not good uh, uh, about sharing my faith, so I'm just going to invite them to the church and let the pastor do it because he's better at it. Now, believe I want you to invite people to church. Of course I do. But you have a responsibility to share the gospel with people. Right? God has done something in your life that only you can share. There's a testimony in your life that only you can share with other people. It is all of our responsibility to share the good news of Jesus. I love this quote. It says, ministry is the only profession that retains nothing to itself. It gives away all of its knowledge for free and invites those served to do the same work. Let's continue to read Ephesians, the last two verses, 15 and 16. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each one of us must play a part in administering grace to others. And at the beginning of the chapter, Paul mentions four virtues that we are to walk in. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to just talk about four virtues that we are supposed to walk in, that we are to learn how to walk in. So the first virtue that Paul talks about is humility. Humility. Walking in humility requires rejecting the ego. Walking in humility requires rejecting the ego. These first two verses of of chapter 4, it sets the tone for the rest of the letter to the Ephesians. It's an overview of what is to come. And in a sense, these four virtues are sort of a, a manifesto for harmonious relationships in the church. And so you can imagine Paul sitting in his prayer cell, writing a letter to the, excuse me, prayer cell, prison cell. You can imagine, it was a prayer cell, I'm sure it was. But you can imagine Paul sitting in his prison cell, and he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. He gets to chapter 4, which we, they didn't have chapters and verses in the original, you know, text. But he, he gets to this part of the letter, 
And he asks himself, <clears throat> what does the church really need most in order to walk in their calling? Maybe it's courage. No, no, that's not it. Obedience? No, that's good, but it's not it. Loyalty? No, I got it. The church needs people who exude humility. It needs humble people. People used to approach me after church when I was a worship pastor, and they would say, oh, Pastor Blake, worship was great. You did awesome. And I'd say, thanks, it was all Jesus. And one time somebody said to me, it was great, but if it was Jesus, I'm sure it'd be a lot better. <laughs> all right. See, I used to, <laughs> you need friends like that in your life, don't you? You're going to tell it to you straight. I used to think I was being humble by not receiving a compliment and thinking less of myself, right? That's what, that's what we, a lot of people confuse humility, just thinking less of yourself. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of others. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of other people. Jesus didn't wash the disciples' feet because he thought he was lowly and unworthy. He did it because he truly loved his disciples and wanted to show them what serving others truly looks like. The opposite of humility is self-centeredness. And at every turn, Christian faith is an assault on our own self-seeking. That's what being a Christian means. It's denying yourself and your desires for the sake of blessing other people. And pride is the ultimate relationship killer. It keeps us from vulnerability for fear of being less than. It creates an environment in which we're always performing to impress others. And pride is all a charade to keep up this perfect image despite our struggles while silently judging others for their struggles. Right? When you're full of pride, you're not vulnerable. You don't share your struggles with other people because you don't want them to know what's truly going on. But secretly you judge their struggles. Secretly, we judge others. But imagine this, church. Imagine how much easier relationships with, would be if people knew from the outset that we sought their best interests and had no desire to belittle them or promote ourselves. Imagine, imagine that church. What would that community look like? When you meet somebody, you know instantly you are not seeking your own glory. You are genuinely interested in what is best for me. That is a loving church. Walking in humility. The second virtue that he mentions is gentleness. Walking in gentleness requires renouncing harshness or violence. Healthy relationships cannot exist under threat and force. Some Christians present themselves as so hostile that nobody wants to be around them. Do you know anybody like that? Don't look around the room. Don't point. But they always, we all know somebody who always has to be right. They, they are constantly right. They're hostile. And gentleness conveys a sensitivity, a, a desire not to harm. It says, I value you. You are precious to me, and I don't want to jeopardize this relationship. And this is important in the church, but it's especially important in the family. It is, it is vastly important in the family. So much emotional and physical damage is done within the context that is supposed to be the most loving. And some of you here can vouch for that. 
You are from homes. You come from families where your mom or your dad was not the nicest person. They were downright mean. They were not gentle. They were harsh. They were violent. They were emotionally distant. Remember this, parents, that your harsh words and actions can crush your children and your spouse. When you look at your family members, imagine a sticker on their forehead that says, fragile, handle with care. I'm I'm being serious. When you look at your children, parents, imagine a sticker on their head that says, fragile, handle with care. The words that you say can break them, can crush their spirits. And we, as the body of Christ, are not only supposed to exude humility, but we are to walk in gentleness as well. Renouncing harshness and violence. The third virtue is patience. Walking in patience requires rejecting the tyranny of our own agenda. Walking in patience requires rejecting the tyranny of our own agenda. All of us have a sense of timing about when events should happen, and it it rarely agrees with anyone else's sense of timing. Am I right? Have you ever been in the car with somebody who's driving five five miles per hour under the speed limit? What are you thinking? As you're in the passenger seat, they're driving five under the speed limit, you're like, what are you doing? Go, go, go. Come on. You're wasting my time. Two-day shipping, on-demand shows and movies, microwavable meals, fast food restaurants, a universe of information accessed with a touch of our phones. We have been conditioned. Yes. See what I mean? Come on. That was perfect timing. It said phones in a ring. Church. Okay, bring it back in. Let's go. We have been conditioned, right, to want it now, to expect it and get it now. And the idea, yeah, amen. The idea that we should not have to wait for anything or anyone is merely another form of self-centeredness. If you think that you shouldn't have to wait for anybody or anything, that is another form of self-centeredness. I love this quote. John Christendom, or Christostom. Man, I said that word weird. He defined patience as meaning this. To have a wide and big soul. To have a wide and big soul. When you, when you lack patience, you have a narrow soul in which there is little margin for others to learn and develop. Everything has to be on your time. There's no room for error. There's no room for anything else. There's no room for people. There's no room for their failure. There's no room for them to develop and grow or be around you. But patience is that wide and big soul that values others enough to give them room and time to fail, to learn, to develop. I want to have a wide and a big soul. I don't want people to be around me and feel like they're walking on eggshells, feeling like they have to meet my expectations all the time. Like they have to be perfect all the time or, or they, have to, they have to accommodate my schedule. I want to have a wide and a big soul that says I value you so much that our relationship is more important than where I have to be or what I have to do. I want to give you space to learn and develop, to grow and to fail. I pray that we as a church, we have wide and big souls. We learn to walk in humility. We learn to walk in gentleness. We learn to walk in patience. I love, these are not the virtues that I would have picked for the church. 
Give me a list of virtues. These would have been at the bottom for me. I would have said faith, courage, right? I would have, I would have picked the more extrovert ones. And here's the fourth one that Paul talks about. I'm going to invite Christina to come up as we close with this last one. Tolerant love is the last virtue. Walking in tolerant love requires renouncing our rights. Bearing one another in love is what Paul says, but it can be better translated as lovingly put up with one another. Put up with one another. We live in a culture today, it's, you know, if you hurt me, that's it. One strike, you're out. I'm finding another church. I'm finding another community. And Paul says to bear one another in love. Put up with one another in love. Walk in tolerant love for one another. And this requires us to renounce our rights. Our rights to an apology. That person owes me an apology and things will never be the same until they apologize. Our rights as a parent, those are my kids. I have a right to be respected. I have a right for this. Our rights as the head of the house, my house, my rules. Our rights as a homeowner. Somebody once said, be careful of standing on your rights for then God may stand on his. Ugh. Because I love you, church, I'm going to tell you that you can be a burden and a pain sometimes. Every one of you. You can be a pain sometimes. You're not always fun to be around. Thanks, Pastor. But here's the thing. Since we're bound together in Christ, letting you go is not an option. Right? You're not perfect. And we silently judge other people thinking how, how terrible and how inconvenient they are. But little do we see that we are the same way. And we're called to bear one another in love. Putting up with each other in love is what families and friends should do. That means tolerating activities, tolerating choices, inconveniences we don't like. Does anyone here have a teenager? I don't yet. Have you ever been a teenager? Somebody had to tolerate you. It might mean tolerating the song or a music style that you don't fully find satisfying. It might mean walking through a trying time with another person without writing them off. And some of you don't like the word tolerate. I can see it on your faces right now. You don't like the word tolerate because it sounds too passive and weak. You might be thinking, we need to be strong and confront people who need to be confronted. If we're pushovers, then we're going to be crushed by selfish and sinful people. The world is going to have its way unless we take a stand and we confront people. Now, there's always a time and a place for confrontation. And it's in the Bible that there is a way to handle conflict even in the church, especially in the church. There's a time and a place for confrontation. But by and large, this text tells us exactly what virtues we need to exhibit in order to fill God's fulfill God's call on our life. A life worthy of the call is a life of fellowship which cannot take place apart from humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerant love. These four virtues that we are called to walk in are the stepping stones, are the foundation 
for what's going to be talked about in the coming weeks. It's the foundation for a healthy community, healthy families, healthy churches, healthy marriages. These four virtues that we are called to walk in is the starting point. And I love that Paul begins here in chapter 4 with these four virtues. I remember the first time I asked God to give me more patience. He answered by placing a very difficult person in my life for me. Thank you, God. I was hoping to just wake up the next day a very patient person. But that's not how it works. And when you ask God to help you walk in these virtues, if you ask God for patience, you can expect to be grown, to be stretched. When you ask God, when you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to walk in tolerant love, you can expect to be stretched. How many of you need more humility and gentleness and patience and tolerant love? Would you stand with me as we close? I'm going to invite the ministry teams to come forward, our prayer teams to come forward. And it's an open invitation, church. I believe that there's people in this room this morning who just need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. When I look at my life, it's quickly, I'm quick to identify when I have been harsh with my kids. In fact, that's where I am right now. As I was preparing this message, as I got to the point about gentleness, I looked at my life as a dad and I went, man, I say some harsh words sometimes. I don't want to crush my kids. When I look at my life, it's so easy to identify where I lack patience and the relationships that I lack patience. And it is a dangerous prayer to ask for more of these things. But I want to open up the invitation for you. If you need to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in these things, maybe you need to partner with one of these people and confess where you've fallen short. Confess some things that you've said or some hurts that you have caused and begin a healing process so that you can walk in these virtues. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for this church, Desert Church, and I ask, Lord, that you would... Fill us to overflowing with a passion, with a vision to walk in these virtues, to be a person with a wide and a big soul, to be a person of humility, to be a person of gentleness, patience, and tolerant love. And God, I ask right now that you would begin to speak to those hearts, those people who need to identify where they've gone wrong, those relationships, whether it be with their kids or their parents or with their co-workers or friends or other family members, Lord. We love you and we truly say that we want to be more and more like you, Jesus. So come and fill this time with your, with your presence. We give it to you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.